My name is John Vapor. I am the RUF campus minister at UNC Charlotte. If you don't know what that is, RUF is college ministry out of the PCA, uh, so the church denomination that Hope belongs to. So I'm a missions partner, basically, of Hope. Um, And I actually interned at Hope from 2016 to 2019, something like that. I was primarily at the Old Providence site, um, but got to be at South and some. So I know some of you, some of you I don't, so it's great to meet you. If I haven't met you, if you will read with me in your bulletin or up on the screens or in your Bible, uh, Mark 1, verses 40 to 45, continuing the series in Mark. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. It said he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let me pray for us as we get started. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these friends, this church, as you're working in everyone's lives here, everyone's individual stories, and in this church as a collective community. And I pray for all the women on the women's retreat that they would have a restful, good weekend, get to know you and others more. And be with us this morning as we look at your word. In your name I pray. Amen. So in RUF, the college ministry I work for, at UNC Charlotte, this semester we are going through uh, relationships. It's a series on relationships. Normally we do like a book of the Bible that we'll kind of work through, but every now and then we'll do something more topical, so we do relationships. You can imagine 18 to 22-year-olds, relationships, dating, marriage, thinking about that stuff is on their minds pretty often. And we also talk about like relationships with your parents, friendship, things like that. Um, And so I talked about dating a couple weeks ago. And you can imagine, uh, students are a little maybe on the edge of their seat of like, what is this pastor about to say about dating? Is he going to be like, There's, the word dating is not in the Bible, so don't do it. Or is he going to tell everyone that y'all have to court, stop dating? Um, even if they like, knew me well, they were a little nervous, like, where is this going to go? What's he about to say? Uh, and it's pretty common, uh, if you've, maybe you were in RUF in college, uh, if you've heard an RUF campus minister give a sermon on dating and relationship series, there's like a 50-50 chance that you hear this story I'm about to tell. <clears throat> it's kind of been passed down a little bit from generations. It's called The Greatest Dating Story Ever Told. So I, just to give credit where it's due, first heard it from former Texas campus minister John Trapp and App State and Tennessee campus minister Matt Howell. They heard it from the source, which is, um, was Ryan Anderson. He was a campus minister at TCU. It was, I believe it was a student he knew. Maybe it was his intern. I don't know. But here's the story. So uh, this is how I like introduce our dating sermon, and it relates today too. We're not talking about dating, so don't get too stressed. Uh, so there's this girl, we're going to call her Meredith, I don't even know her real name. Uh, Meredith was from Alabama, which is where I'm from, and she went to Samford University, it's a school in Birmingham. Um, so she's there, start of the fall semester, she meets a guy, they start talking, they start dating, and Thanksgiving rolls around, I've been dating for a couple months, getting to know each other. And the boyfriend says, hey, do you want to go visit my family for Thanksgiving? We kind of do, Thanksgiving is like a big thing in our family. Um, It's a big event. Do you want to come? She said, sure. And so he was from somewhere in the Northeast, I believe Massachusetts. Um, He is, she doesn't know much about his family. Flies there with him, 
roll up to the house, and the house is like not a house, it's like an estate. It's like old money type thing, a bunch of land. The Thanksgiving, it was, there was like a chef there, like in the kitchen, like preparing the food. It was like a big thing, wealthy folks. Um, so she's a little surprised, did not expect this, but okay, things are going great, the evening's going well, hang out with the family, and then Meredith uh, tells the mom, hey, so she needs to use the restroom, but she says, trying to fit in, because she feels out of place, she says, hey, where's your powder room? So the mom says, oh, it's down the hall, blah, blah, turn left, whatever. I don't know how many, maybe there's a bunch of turns if it's a really big house. Uh, she says, okay, thanks. She goes, the family has this shih tzu that's like part of the family. You know, it's like one of the kids. Uh, and it kind of follows everyone around. So it follows Meredith, and Meredith's like, what? And the mom's like, oh, it just follows everyone everywhere. It's great. So Meredith goes with the shih tzu to the uh, powder room. And turns out it's an actual powder room, not the bathroom. So there's not a toilet. There is a mirror on the wall, and there's like a standalone sink. Okay. So at this time, Meredith has two options. Maybe you're putting together what some of the options are. Option one is, okay, I go out, I say, actually, I needed the bathroom. I was trying to fit in. This is so embarrassing. She has to confess. Who would do that, right? Uh, what an awful choice. Option two, there's technically a drain in the sink, and she just has to pee. So she can make this work. This is, of course, if she chose option one, this wouldn't be a fun story. But she chose option two. So Meredith climbs up on the sink. She is holding the mirror to keep herself balanced. And the last thing she remembers as she's falling backwards is the mirror coming off the wall. She falls back, hits her head on the ground, and like temporarily blacks out. She wakes up to the mom screaming as the family has opened the door because they heard this loud crash. Uh, her pants around her ankles, a puddle of urine. And when she came down, the sink came down too and the dog was under where the sink fell. You can draw conclusions there of what happened to the dog. It wasn't good. The mom is screaming. The family's there. She is on the ground, pants down, urine everywhere. And there has to be more. I'm, this is the one part of the story I actually question of like what was actually said. Because uh, the way I've heard it twice now is that the boyfriend uh, takes a step forward and says, hey, let me help you up. Let's get your things. You should go home and helps her home, gets her on a flight, and they break up. And that's the end of the story. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, I assume he at least was like, are you okay? Or something like that. I don't know. Um, the mom was traumatized because of what's happened to her beloved Shih Tzu. Uh, and this, cap this story captures all of dating, I think. It's, uh, you start dating someone, it's exciting and new. You're like learning things. Oh, he's rich. I had no idea. Like you're learning new things about the person. Mystery. You're anxious, you don't want to mess up, you're trying to fit in, uh, you're still playing like promotional uh, work for yourself, trying to like appear a certain way, uh, and it all ends in a puddle of urine and confusion, that's dating. Um, the story has it all. Um, <clears throat> and while it's a great story about dating, it also, in a weird way, kind of connects what we're talking about today. Because uh, this story is also about being an outsider and trying to fit in, right? I know it's an extreme version of it. But it's about trying to fit in. It's about the great links that many of us will let go, including Meredith, maybe more extreme links than some of us, uh, to try and fit in. Because she didn't come from this like high society like her boyfriend did. She wanted to be a part of it. She felt like an outsider. 
In our passage today, in Mark 1, we have a man who's suffering from leprosy. And if you don't know, leprosy um, is a skin disease that spreads across your body and affects your skin and particularly affects your nerves. And you can see it. It's like, you can see it on your skin. Extreme cases can lead to like bodily disfigurement. It's this nasty disease. And not only all that, but it's contagious. And so put it simply, leprosy is a terrible disease that can be seen when someone has it, and it can be spread to others. So, like if you can imagine then, if someone contracts leprosy today, they would be quarantined as they were treated and all these kinds of things. But considering the healthcare options in Jesus' day, <clears throat> typically what happens if you have leprosy is you're just kind of cast out of the town, on the outskirts of the city, on the edges, you kind of lose any social network you have because no one wants to be around you uh, because they don't want to contract what you have. They don't want to be seen with you because then others might think that they have it too. And again, because of their, how they're cast out of the city, it's on their skin, there's nothing they can do to hide their outsider status, right? Now, I'm not interested in comparing like Meredith's suffering or ours today to this man with leprosy. Um, <clears throat> I acknowledge that the physical suffering he experienced, the loneliness he experienced, uh, was probably maybe not even the same ballpark that some of us experience today. Uh, however, I do think there's something in here for us to identify with this man with leprosy, the outsider, the one in need. Maybe at your work or your job, you feel like an outsider. Maybe everyone has the same interests. They like going out for drinks after work or something, and you just feel like you don't fit in. Maybe with your family, maybe it's your views on religion or politics or whatever it is. You feel like you don't fit in there either. Maybe it's here at Hope, at church. Maybe you feel like you've tried community groups and none of them really clicked, and you feel like everyone's like so happy here. What's wrong with me? Am I an outsider? Am I weird? Am I crazy? Uh, when I interned at Hope, I was at the Old Providence site, which is where, if you all know Matt Ham, he's the pastor there. Uh, Matt, I guess the best way to put it, is very muscular. <laughs> and you know what I mean if you've seen him. Uh, he is a former football player, college football player at the Citadel. And then I was interning around the same time as Aaron Engel was, and Aaron was a college basketball player. Meanwhile, I was like, I was the president of the Ultimate Frisbee team in high school. That's like the heights of my athletic prowess. Um, not that they ever excluded me, but I felt a little bit like, do I fit in with these guys? There's all kinds of small ways in your life, or maybe really big things in your life, where you can feel like you're on the outside looking in. And so with so much of our life where we can feel isolated or alone or lonely or like an outsider, what are we supposed to do with that? And I think there's three practical things that I can think of of how you respond when you feel like an outsider. The first one is this. Uh, the first one, when you feel like an outsider, what do I do? The first one is like, stop being an outsider, fit in. Okay, cool. Easier said than done, but just like stop being an outsider, okay? That's one solution. Two, you can simply remove yourself from the context that you feel like an outsider, right? If I feel like an outsider here, it's uncomfortable. I don't feel like I fit in. I'm just going to quit hanging out with these people, being around this thing. I'm going to quit trying. This is the path of least resistance, right? Um, and while that technically is a solution to fix the, the problem of you feel like an outsider, it doesn't solve the problem, right? It doesn't feel good. And the third solution is this. <clears throat> when you feel like an outsider, to find some kind of peace or comfort or contentment in your life where you feel okay being an outsider, okay? Like some kind of contentment that's outside of that situation that can give you peace. 
I think we'd all agree that the third solution sounds the best, right? The first one involves maybe like trying to be someone else that's not you, trying to fit in. Uh, the second one is simply running away from the problem. But the third one sounds like rest, security. That sounds good. That sounds great. Sounds nice. But how is that possible? How can you ever find in the ways in your life what you might feel like an outsider? How can you ever find some kind of sense of contentment, security? With how anxiety-inducing the world can be around us, how chaotic our personal lives can be, how intense the actual physical suffering is that we might feel in our life, like this man in Mark 1, how can we ever have hope for peace or contentment? And I would argue that a great starting point is here in Mark 1, with this man asking Jesus to heal him. Did you notice what specific question the man with leprosy asked Jesus? Because the wording's important. If I didn't know the story, I would guess um, someone in this tragic condition, like the man in Mark 1, he sees Jesus, he's probably heard like rumors of this guy healing people or something, Uh, but you see this guy, this Jesus, you're sick, and you walk by, and I would imagine he would say, hey, Jesus, you, can you heal me? Can you heal me? It would make sense if he led with, hey, is it true what you can do? Can you do this? That makes sense because it would be a, a question about Jesus' power and ability. Like, can you do this thing for me? A question of how powerful are you? Are you powerful enough to heal me? Do you have that ability, Jesus? That would make sense as the question he'd ask. And why does it matter to think about the wording here? Because that's not what he does. He doesn't ask, can you heal me? He asks Jesus, will you heal me? The difference between like can and will, it makes me think of when I was a kid. Maybe your parents, uh, grandparents did this. My grandma did this. Um, <clears throat> I would be like, Grandma, can I have some, or can you get me some ice cream? And she would say, I don't know, can I? And you know, she'd keep doing that until I said, will you get me some ice cream, right? That's the difference of the words. And of course, she'd give me the ice cream, because that's what grandmas typically do, is give your grandkids ice cream. As my in-laws watch our two-year-old right now, who knows what they're eating. Um, <clears throat> The difference between can you and will you heal me, Jesus? Because here's the thing. For whatever reason, this man already believes and trusts that Jesus can heal him, so he's asking again, will you heal me? The question leper's asking here isn't, Jesus, are you powerful enough to heal me? Can you do it? He's saying, Jesus, do you care about me and are you good? Because if you are, then I think you'll heal me. If you care about me and if you're good. So that's the question the leper is concerned with when he uses will you instead of can you, Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, are you good? And when we think about the ways in our lives that we can feel like outsiders today, is that not the question that might ring true for you? Not, hey God, can you fix my situation? But instead, God, do you not see me here? Don't you care about me? Are you good? If you are, why do I still feel this way? Why do I still struggle? Why am I so lonely or the outsider? In our relationship series in RUF that I mentioned earlier, so we talked about dating a few weeks ago. We talked about singleness two weeks ago. Um, And I don't want to dig up some pain that you might feel um, if you aren't satisfied with your current relationship status of single or whatever it may be. Um, And I also don't want to compare our suffering and our loneliness, uh, our anxieties, depressions. We might feel with our relationship status to the man with leprosy. I don't want to compare those things in one sense, but I also think 
that for those in the room today who may be single and happen to also long for a relationship, which isn't everyone, but those who are single who do happen to long for that, I think we can often ask God the same question as the leper. Like, God, are you good? Do you not see me here? See, in our culture today, especially in the South, Southeast, especially, especially in the American church in the Southeast, being single can sometimes make you feel like a second-class citizen. You can feel like an outsider in churches when there's families and kids. And you can find yourself asking God, not, hey, God, can you fix this problem, this longing in my heart? But instead, hey, God, will you fix this? Because I know you can, but if you're actually and truly good, why do you allow me to hurt in this way? And when we looked at singleness uh, in our RUF large group a couple weeks ago, we looked at how Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul tells everyone, he's particularly addressing single people in this passage, but he's talking to everyone at the same time. Um, what he tells single people is he says, quote, continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you. In other words, Paul says, find some contentment in your life, which I know is like a really easy thing to say to someone who's like hurting or like lonely or sad. Is like, hey, just like find contentment and be happy. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, really helpful. But I don't think Paul is offering just some like trite, empty platitude here. Instead, in this, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, which we're not going to read the whole thing today, but in 1 Corinthians, and really throughout the rest of the Bible, we actually can find some kind of, we can see that there is some kind of contentment that can be had in this life. Even in singleness, even as you might feel like an outsider, how can we find, single, or find contentment by looking to God's goodness? It's where we want to look. If you're at all like me, you probably find yourself lacking contentment in a lot of areas, or maybe all of your life, um, the way Paul's talking about here. Um, I'm always thinking about what's next, what's the next thing. I am an American millennial, after all. That's kind of our thing. That's what we do. We don't want to be tied down, because like that cool job opportunity could come up, or that sweet trip could come up, or an opportunity to go live like in Europe or something. It's like what millennials do. We don't want to be tied down. I could miss out on this next great thing. We often find ourselves dissatisfied with our current situation, be it work, school, relationships, social life, whatever, and we go, okay, but next year will be different. Like, what if something happens next year? Then I'll be happy, and everything will be better. Just looking ahead. Do you find yourself doing that, looking ahead to the next thing? I think it's pretty natural for us to do. My wife, Marianne, and I, uh, we have been married for nine and a half years, and we've been doing this thing in our marriage uh, where whether it's finances or stuff with our families or jobs, we have this, it's now a running joke. It did not start out as a joke. It started out very serious. Uh, where we would tell each other, okay, look, soon we're going to have this thing over here taken care of, and we're going to pay off this thing, and this thing will happen with our job, and after all of that, we'll finally have our lives together. Like, we'll finally have arrived. We'll finally be able to rest. Just right to take care of a couple more things in like two or three weeks, we're going to be able to rest. We're going to have it all together. I'll finally feel put together. And of course, as you can imagine, it never comes. Somehow it keeps moving out further. And that feeling of, oh, now we have it all together, it never comes. We somehow never feel caught up. And again, the tragic but funny thing is, is that this started out not as a joke. Like we, for many years, were 100% genuinely convinced, like, okay, actually, once we like cross these last couple little things off our list, we're going to be Okay finish this thing at my job, we'll pay off this thing, we can finally relax. 
And maybe you already know this. Uh, it took us almost nine years of marriage to figure out. Uh, after nine years, we finally looked at each other because we said that like a couple times a year to each other, like, oh, just a couple more things. But like, wait a minute. It's been nine years that we're about to have our lives together. You know what? Maybe this like in-between stage where I'm waiting on the next thing, maybe that's just what life is, right? Like maybe we can't keep looking ahead of the next thing or for this problem to resolve or this thing to be behind us. Maybe life is actually just made up of all these in-between moments. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is, yeah, that's right. So embrace what is your life today and learn how to love Jesus and others in that space. Quit waiting on the next thing, thinking, then I can start my life. Then I'll be ready. Now, here's the thing. The only way for me to be content and quit waiting on things, waiting on the day where whether it's I'm no longer single, waiting on the day where I no longer feel like an outsider and feel like I belong, the only way for me to find any kind of contentment is for me to accept that where I am right now in my life is right where God wants me to be, and I'm there on purpose. And to believe, and to believe that, I have to believe that God is good. And not just like mostly good a lot of the time. I have to believe that God's good all of the time. And not just like a little good, but he's very, 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 very good. If I want to overcome my feelings of being an outsider or not having it together, if I want to have any kind of contentment in my life, the only thing I can do is trust God's goodness. That he's in control of all of it and that he's good. Paige Benton Brown, is a, she's a woman that was an RUF student, um, I think at UVA, I'm not sure. And she was an intern for RUF and then she was on campus staff, so she worked for RUF at Vanderbilt for a while many years ago, and Paige reached a stage in her life, this is, I think, like 10, 12 years ago, maybe. Uh, she reached a stage in her life where she was on staff at RUF at Vanderbilt, and she was 26-ish years old. And so she was entering in the stage in her life where everyone she knew, all of her friends, were starting to either get married or have kids. And she was single. So when you reach that stage, that's when you uh, start becoming hyper-aware, if you are single, you start becoming hyper-aware of your relationship status. Especially, again, in the American South. Vanderbilt is Nashville, the South, in Christian spaces. So Paige Benton Brown, she was becoming increasingly aware of her singleness at the age of 26. And she has this article, she's written and said a lot of great things over the years, but she has this little article she wrote on singleness years ago. Um, it's on singleness and the goodness of God that she wrote at this time in her life. And it says this, she says, I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. And I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple years because God's good to me. Or I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is good to me. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corning wear. But is God being any less good to me than he is to her? And the answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. 
It's a matter if it's your relationship status in your life or whatever the reason is, you might feel like an outsider or like you don't belong or you're waiting on this thing or that thing. No matter what the reason is, that you might feel like you don't have it all together quite yet. We all need to hear these things. We have to stop our endless search for who we are, and we need to hear who God says we are. When God looks at you and he looks at me, he sees his child that he wants the best for, that he loves and adores deeply. Not only does he look at you and at me and he sees his child, but the Bible also tells us that he promises he's a good father. And that, as Paige Brenton Brown says, that he literally cannot be any more or less good to you today than he already has been. So while we can question God and we can be confused what he's up to in our lives and in the world around us, God wants us to see at the end of the day that we have to be able to rest in his goodness. So the question today is, do you trust God's goodness? And that the goodness, his goodness doesn't change Do you truly trust that it's a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange you, his child? Because God being good isn't something that changes depending on how he feels that day. It's simply who he is. So when the man with leprosy calls out to Jesus, will you make me clean? Are you good? Jesus can confidently say yes. Do you and I believe that? And what would change in our lives if we did believe that? See, and we'll, and we'll close to this last point, kind of bring this all together. Um, you can trust that God, that Jesus' goodness isn't an attitude, it's an attribute, because of how he chose to live his life. You can trust Jesus' goodness because of how he lived his life. What I mean is this. Uh, whenever we see miracles in the Bible, Jesus uh, healing people like he does in Mark 1, what do we call them? We call them supernatural miracles, Right? They weren't natural. Jesus healing this man with leprosy, it wasn't normal. It wasn't natural. It was supernatural. We say what's natural is death and leprosy and singleness and depression and loneliness and these things that might eat away at us in this life. That's natural and normal. So whenever we see Jesus healing someone in the Bible, we can pretty confidently say, based on everything I know about how the world works, when Jesus miraculously heals someone, that is supernatural because it goes against what's natural and normal in creation. But what if we've got it backwards on what's natural? What if the world we live in with its decaying and its death and its pain and its loneliness, what if that is unnatural? And what if Jesus healing this man with leprosy, what if that is the most natural thing he could do? Jürgen Moltmann, he's this old German theologian, he wrote this in his book, The Way of Jesus. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction, and he's healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God, to which the healings witness, restores creation to its health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. Jesus' healings are the only truly natural thing in a world that's unnatural. So the point is this. When Jesus heals this man with leprosy in Mark 1, he's actually doing something that's incredibly natural to him. He's returning the man to his original healthy state, and Jesus is simply being who he is, one that heals. 
And we see Jesus do things like this throughout his earthly ministry. Again, he heals the sick, casts out demons, he feeds the hungry. Uh, and as all of this, all of these things we see Jesus do, and we'll see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, are all these things not a testament to Jesus' natural heart that overflows with goodness? In this short story today of Jesus healing a man with leprosy, is that not a testament to how he can heal your hurts too? And that it's actually natural and normal for him to do it. That's what I want us to leave here with today. This is the takeaway. Uh, no matter where you are in life, no matter what your current struggle is, sick like this man with leprosy, maybe you just feel like an outsider who doesn't belong, maybe you're struggling with your relationship status, maybe you're struggling with depression, anxiety, no matter what your struggle is, I want to simply offer you this. Have you ever even actually asked Jesus if he will heal you? Do you believe in his goodness? Now, I'm not implying that you're necessarily going to have some kind of miraculous, like, I prayed yesterday that I wouldn't be lonely anymore, and I woke up the next day, and I wasn't lonely type of experience. Uh, we see throughout the Bible that we're never going to be free in this life from all of our problems and our pains. Even the man with leprosy in Mark 1, healed by Jesus, like, you have to imagine, like, incredible wishes happened, but he probably had lost all his social structure. Um, I'm guessing his bank account was probably zeroed out. Like, this one thing was solved, but he still had a life of struggles ahead of him, right? Even though he'd been healed, he still had problems in his life. And now, well, you're not necessarily going to experience some miraculous, I prayed yesterday and I woke up today and now my life's perfect. But have you ever in your life cried out to God with your problems? Have you ever asked him if he's good? Do you believe that despite your present situation, despite your loneliness, or how hard things might be, do you believe that God is good? And if you don't believe that, how can you? I'm going to close with this last quote. I think part of it's on the front of your bulletin by Paige Benton Brown, again, the same article. She's writing her article on singleness and uh, questioning, struggling with the goodness of God. And she's writing about how she's trying to find a way to trust God's goodness despite struggling with this thing that's weighing her down, her present circumstances. And so she's talking about how, how she can know that God is good to her. And she says this, I can know God's good to me because can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition or his mood, but his goodness is the essence of his person. And this is the last line. God's goodness is not an attitude, but it's an attribute. That's what I want us to leave here with today. God's goodness isn't an attitude, something that can change dependent on his mood that day or what we've done that day. His goodness is an attribute overflowing to us, his children. Let me close this in prayer. God, thank you again for this church, these people, these friends, and how you're working in their lives. I don't know the struggles that uh, so many of them are facing, uh, big things, little things, all across the map, but we thank you that you're good. And that even though um, we might not have some miraculous experience where suddenly all of our problems are gone, but thank you that you tell us over and over again in your word that you are good, that you told uh, you responded to the 
man with leprosy in Mark 1, that you are good and you can and do heal. Now would you help us believe that through the power of your spirit this coming week. In your name I pray, amen.